Hello and welcome to the podcast of Tech.eu, Europe's premier technology industry information portal and market intelligence platform. This is episode number 87, recorded on September 17th, 2018. On this podcast, we discuss the recent technology news stories and feature interviews with interesting entrepreneurs and investors from across the continent. My name is Andrei Degeler. I am a journalist at Tech.eu based in Amsterdam, the Netherlands. And today I am happy to be joined by Natalie Novik, our research analyst and feature writer. Hey, Natalie, how are you? Hi, Andre. I'm doing great. And I'm calling in today from Edinburgh, where we have just kicked off the fintech Fortnite. And I'm not talking about Fortnite like the game. We're actually starting two weeks of tech events, conferences and meetups on Scottish fintech and looking at how to make this industry a, a global player here. So if anyone's here in Scotland, I'll be around at tons of events this week. Say hi and give me a shout. Is fintech actually this big in uh, Scotland that there is enough uh, stuff to do for two weeks? There actually is a number of really exciting startups working in this industry here. It is a growing sector and there is a lot of interest, especially from government, to make this a very prominent part of the tech ecosystem here. So I'm looking to learn more. That sounds pretty cool. So we will talk more about uh, events uh, coming up uh, later in the show. We also are going to talk about a few of the most interesting news stories uh, from the past week. Then we will have two interviews, both recorded at the EIC Innovator Summit in Berlin last week. The first one is with the director of the Executive Agency for Small and Medium Enterprises, EASME, and uh, the interview is all about the future of the grants for entrepreneurs and researchers that EU hands out. The other interview is a conversation with uh, Corinne Vigro, the co-founder of uh, TomTom, located here in uh, Amsterdam. So stay tuned for these two interviews, but first we will dive into the news. And the first story I wanted to talk about today is one of the bigger ones uh, from last week, and it is about the EU Copyright Directive, which was uh, passed uh, by the European Parliament. So I will just uh, talk quickly about what can be expected from uh, when the directive comes uh, in uh, as a law and what sort of implications may arise. So first, the Copyright Directive contains the infamous uh, Article 11, also known as the Link Tax, and Article 13, also known by the media as the Upload Filter and the Meme Killer. So this wasn't the final vote uh, last week. Uh, the vote uh, will happen between January and March, but it is quite probable that uh, the directive will be passed into law after all. There still could be a lot of tweaks in wording though, so we will keep an eye on this. So right now, let me quickly walk you through the articles and possible implications that could arise from them. First up, Article 11. This would allow publishers and newspapers to demand uh, paid licenses uh, when commercial platforms link to their stories. Obviously, this first of all aimed at all sorts of aggregators like uh, Google News, for example, and many others. It also specifically exempts uh, private and non-commercial uh, sharing. So you can still share a snippet of a story that you read in a newspaper on your Twitter account. You can do it for free. You will not be charged for that. But uh, Google News and aggregators like that might have to pay. The current version of the legislation also says that uh, mere hyperlinks and individual words from stories cannot be taxed. The question is, however, like how many words 
is that and uh, when do enough individual words um, become a snippet so there is no particular uh, that there are no numbers mentioned in the current version of the legislation which makes it extremely vague uh, the other questions that arise uh, would be whether RSS readers uh, would be included into this and how about individuals uh, who run pages with huge following on social media and share stories published elsewhere. So the whole thing is very vague and it's really hard to understand what exactly would happen if it were passed into law in this edition. So you might recall also uh, if you have been following European policy news that this is not the first first time that someone tries to introduce a regulation like this. As Spain introduced almost exactly the same thing in 2014. Well, Google reacted by shutting down Google News uh, in the country altogether. Uh, local aggregators couldn't afford uh, the fees that were imposed uh, upon them and also shut down. And as a result, overall traffic to news websites fell by 15%, uh, which is obviously a lot. Another case was in Germany in 2013, a very similar law. Google just uh, dropped uh, the websites who wouldn't let their content uh, be shared for free. And again, uh, traffic uh, fell down and uh, publishers basically had to come back to the fold and uh, allow Google and the other aggregators uh, share snippets from their story without any licensing fees. Wow, so this could have an incredible impact, but it's too early now to know what this potentially could be. But what I'm interested to know is about the memes. Wasn't the concern by everyone on Reddit that this new legislation would prevent people from creating and sharing one of the best parts about the internet? Yeah, that's exactly the case. And it's not just uh, people on Reddit, but also Reddit itself, who stepped up and said uh, that they are very upset about uh, this uh, this regulation. And this is all about uh, the next uh, article that is usually discussed uh, in the media, and that is Article 13. It's been called uh, the upload filter or the meme killer for that reason. The initial version uh, of this article required platforms to work proactively with uh, copyright holders and stop users from uploading copyrighted content. So that basically meant that the platforms would need to analyze and pre-moderate uploaded content, which means a, a getting closer to kind of full-blown censorship on the internet and be a significant burden for a smaller companies which might just not be able to afford this kind of thing. That's like actually monitoring stuff in real time. And if we are talking about uh, big volumes of data, it can be really costly and really difficult. So in the current version, however, the version that was passed uh, uh, by the parliament uh, last week, the wording has changed. So the common interpretation right now is that the moderation on upload is not required anymore. Uh, so it's gonna be probably something like we already know and we already have on YouTube. Uh, it's called uh, the content ID system that YouTube uses and it scans videos for copyright infringing materials. The problem with that, however, is that uh, Content ID itself is known for being wrong in a lot of cases. And uh, in Article 13, with Article 13, if it comes to a law, we're going to experience its inaccuracies at a very large scale. So some of the examples were, for example, when a uh, video was taken down uh, because there were birds chirping in the background and Content ID decided that it was sort of a soundtrack that was uh, copyrighted by somebody else and it has to be taken down. There is a lot of ridiculous uh, things that could happen. So going, coming back to the memes, again, the question is, how would this uh, content ID-esque tech uh, distinguish uh, between fair use and actual copyright infringement? All the GIFs and screenshots and uh, all the stuff uh, uh, taken from movies, for example, or other copyrighted pieces uh, for the memes, it's now a big part of uh, popular culture, but it's really anyone's guess at the moment uh, what will happen to them in Europe uh, in, in just a few years. Wow, so that can be incredibly wide reaching. And are there any other areas that these articles might impact? 
Actually, yes. So uh, not necessarily this particular uh, articles, but the whole directive is obviously much bigger than just uh, these two points. And uh, although articles 11 and 13 have attracted the most attention so far, just because they basically concern everybody, there are a bunch of uh, smaller and more niche things that also don't really look promising uh, for certain industries and certain people. One is the way that the regulation uh, treats uh, text and data mining. So there is a good piece about it in the conversation. I will link to it in the show notes. And the thing is, the directive states that text and data mining or copyrighted materials for research purposes is an exception and won't be treated as an infringement. So basically, if you're a university or a researcher and you want to do a certain analysis of uh, copyrighted materials, you can do so without any issues. This is a great thing, right? But the point is, there is a bigger question. Uh, should text and data mining in general be exempted from licensing fees altogether and treated as fair use as it is already in the US? The current version of the directive could actually be interpreted in a way that you would need to pay the copyright holder to analyze their pieces of content, which doesn't necessarily sound right. And it's a much longer discussion. And I don't think it's a good thing to just uh, pass it uh, together with uh, all the other stuff in the copyright directive. Wow, that that's really interesting. And but wasn't there something else about sports? Yeah, the sports is yet another thing and yet another article that's uh, called uh, the article 12A. It was described uh, in a blog post by uh, Julia Rida, who is uh, part of the European uh, Parliament, and she is one of the most vocal opponents of uh, the copyright directive. And uh, what is going on is that uh, this uh, article 12A basically gives the event organizer, the sport event organizer, the exclusive rights to record and share the recordings of the event. It could mean a serious blow uh, to the fan culture, uh, which is rich with all sorts of fan works like commentary and uh, supercuts and so on. And with the current wording, it could even mean that you cannot post a photo taken at the event on your own Instagram account. So all in all, uh, the directive still sounds extremely vague, and this vagueness comes uh, in the most important points, basically where the numbers have to be and where as little interpretation as possible should be given. So over the next few months, uh, though, the directive will be discussed between the Parliament, uh, the European Commission, and uh, the member states in so-called uh, trilogues. And then uh, the European Parliament will hold a final vote, and that will happen anywhere between January and March 2019. And then if the vote is positive, so if the version of the directive that comes down to the parliament uh, then uh, is uh, passed into a law, then the member states will have two more years to implement the directive. And that, uh, again, means a lot of uh, potential differences in uh, interpretation. And uh, from there, we can see all sorts of uh, different uh, things to happen. So let's keep an eye on uh, Brussels for now. Uh, let's follow the developments uh, of this story. And remember that it can actually influence uh, all of us and uh, our daily lives a lot more than uh, we could imagine right now. Yeah, I, I certainly agree. And thank you so much for sharing that, Andre. And it'll be very interesting to see how this develops. So, yeah, the next thing we're probably going to hear about it is closer to the uh, final vote because all these trilogues, as far as I understand, they usually happened behind the closed doors. So it's going to be either some reports maybe from there or just the final version of the legislation uh, before it goes to the final vote. Now, uh, let's move on from this story to our first interview. And uh, this one is uh, with uh, Julian Guerrier, uh, the director of EA SME. And he will be telling me about the new things coming for the SME instrument uh, program, which is the European Union's uh, grant system for researchers and the entrepreneurs. <music> Hello, this is Andre Degeler, journalist at tech.eu, recording today in Berlin at EIC Innovator Summit. And today I have a chance to uh, catch up with Julien Guerrier uh, from the Executive Agency for Small and Medium-Sized Enterprise in the uh, European Commission. Uh, hi, Julien, and thanks a lot for joining. Hi, good morning. 
So uh, yesterday I uh, went to on the website uh, of uh, uh, the EASME and just tried to understand the scope of uh, the whole thing. But there is so much that you are uh, that you are busy with. So where uh, where does the focus lie? Well, what we are trying to do is to bank on the great ideas that we have in Europe. They are creative innovators, there are plenty of ideas, and we want to support them at European level to make them commercial successes. So what we try to do is to give them grants or financial support exactly when they don't have access to the markets, when there is a gap, a valley of death, as we say, in order for them to boost their growth and get to the market with their ideas. Right. So uh, yesterday on stage, you also mentioned that there are lessons uh, that you have learned over the first uh, uh, years of operation of the ASME. So what are these lessons? Well, one of the first lessons is when you ask, when you tour the, the exhibition here and you ask people how useful the support from the European Commission has been, they tell you, well, of course, the money came just at the right time. So that's to intervene when there is a market gap. But beyond the money, it's all the surrounding support that was key to us. We had to structure our business plan to apply for the funding. We had to develop a sustainable business development strategy. And in addition to that, we got into what we would call a community of innovators. They got contacts with us, through us, with other beneficiaries. We are putting them in touch with mentors, coaches. We are training them to pitch their ideas to financial institutions. So it's all that surrounding support, what we call the business acceleration services, that make a real difference beyond the money intervening at the right moment. So those are the two main lessons, and that's what we want to develop. I think a third and last lesson, which is very important for us, is that after the funding at an early stage, which is what we've been focusing on so far, there is a real need to help them to get to venture capitalists, to the banking world, in order to scale up when they have developed and already gone to the market, but when they want to go to the next stage of their development. And that's why we want to develop a new instrument in the future. The Commission has proposed that last June to the European Council and the Parliament in order to support them along the whole chain from the early stage as we are doing now, but also towards the scale-up of their activities through financial instruments support. So what uh, what is this uh, new proposal like? Well, first it will put a lot more money on that and I think it's um, it's something to be underlined at a time when we have budget constraints at European level, at national level. We are reducing the budgets basically, but within those reduced budgets we are putting a much more important focus on investing in our future and creation, innovation is our future. And that's why we, ha we have proposed to double the budget at European funding and to blend, as we call it, our traditional grant support with financial instruments, meaning venture capital investment that we will do publicly, in a sense, uh, in order to leverage afterwards the financial investment that they, that they need. Right. So as far as I understood uh, also from uh, yesterday's presentation, and now you are also going to invest and uh, take uh, equity in the startups that you're investing in. Is that correct? It's correct. Indeed. Great. So uh, I once also wanted to ask something uh, totally different. So the, uh, the US, for example, they don't really have that much uh, governmental support uh, for startups on any stage, an early stage or a scale-up stage. And still, uh, the ecosystem uh, there is uh, thriving and is doing uh, pretty well. So why do you think it's so important for Europe to have this uh, governmental safety net uh, that does not exist in the US and it didn't really intervene with its startup ecosystem? System. Well, I would say mainly for two reasons. One, we have a very different culture in Europe and in the US. We don't have the same entrepreneurship culture that they have there. We don't have the same ecosystem and we need to develop it and support it at governmental level. And two, we are much more fragmented. Although we are building and we've been building Europe and a single market for the past 50 years, we are still 28 member states with different support systems and we need to create scale and we have to do that at European level. So when do you think uh, this new equity-based uh, support system uh, will uh, come into fruition? Well, the plan is to 
put it, to implement it uh, during the next financial framework, as we call it in, in Europe. So that's the seven-year budget that we have from 2021 to 2027. But even before that, we want to launch already next year a pilot to test it and to demonstrate its potential benefits on the ground. So next year, there will be a first pilot at European level uh, with available money and um, then from 2021 we will launch the full-scale project. And how do you think it's going to work? So who is going to be uh, determining the valuation and uh, the terms that you will be investing? Well, the evaluators uh, will be a bit like today, but even more than today, coming from different worlds, from the innovation and academic world, from the entrepreneurship world, and also, of course, from the investors' world. So people will have to pitch their project and to demonstrate that they are really onto some breakthrough innovation and that they have a credible, realistic implementation plan and that this can create market opportunities for the, for the future. Are there any limitations as to uh, how much uh, equity you would be taking from these startups? Yes, uh, we will. Uh, well, we will see how this develops, and the plan is currently being discussed with member states in the council and with uh, parliament. Uh, but of course, what we want to do is to intervene at public level only when and where it is necessary, and stop when the private sector can then uh, take um, the responsibility and uh, and support the growth of those companies. And this uh, this new fund, uh, is it going to have any sort of KPIs as to returns on investment? Of course it will, uh, but it will be quite a challenge to determine what KPIs we need to develop because contrary to private investors, we are not in the logic of making money. What we want is take risks where others, where the private sector doesn't take the risk because it's too high. So in a sense, as they say in the US, um, and DARPA, as you know, is one of our models, failure is a measure of success for public investment. Uh, because if we were to succeed disproportionately, then it means that we would just have displaced private investment. Uh, so that will be something that we will have to, to be working on uh, very, very seriously. It was also mentioned on stage yesterday that this new accelerator program will have the program management uh, and uh, the person who will uh, lead uh, the whole effort. Is there already any information on uh, who that's going to be and uh, where from uh, they would be coming, from the investor part or from the government part? Well, that's much too early to say. But uh, as I was just saying you, uh, the DARPA model is something uh, that uh, is inspiring us. So what we want to do is to get people from outside, of course, the governmental uh, system, people who know the investor's world, the entrepreneur's world, and who can come for a limited amount of time, maybe, I don't know, three, four, five years, uh, to uh, the commission in order to manage quite independently, to our standards, those programs and uh, decide where to invest, which ideas to invest in, to support, when to stop, when to continue. Right. And there was another uh, announcement uh, made uh, yesterday from stage about the online platform uh, for all the participants uh, in the European Innovation Council pilot uh, ecosystem. What is it going to be and where, uh, where and when does this uh, come to life? Well, it came to life yesterday, so it's online and people can start using it. And uh, it's something that intends to multiply the impact of those business acceleration services, which support the growth of our companies beyond just financial support. So we will have their corporate, big corporates who wants to be in touch with promising SMEs and uh, startups. We will have their investors. Uh, I was uh, talking yesterday with stock exchanges who really want to, to support and, and be part of the endeavor. We will have the whole community of beneficiaries of our program. So that's more than 4,000 people who have benefited in the past four years of our support and who can help each other exchange best practices, experiences. We will have the coaches, the mentors. So all that will be available on one platform online, which came to life yesterday. And uh, we hope that people uh, beyond the business contacts that they will have developed uh, yesterday and today at this event, will uh, continue to, um, to use that platform in order to grow.
Uh, is it possible for uh, someone from outside of this uh, ecosystem to get access to it? Well, the, the idea is to support our community. So we have been um, extending that beyond what we call the SME instrument, which is the basis for this uh, accelerator in the European Innovation Council, to the other components of the pilot uh, European Innovation Council, meaning our schemes for fast track to innovation in order to support innovations that are close to the market, and our uh, future and emerging technologies um, scheme, which is trying to put together universities, the education world, the academic world, with the research world and the innovation world. So, so all those schemes are put together, but this is something that is limited to, of course, those who have passed the very stringent selection processes that we have, and it is a package that we offer funding plus business acceleration services. Yeah, this is fair enough. Okay, that was it for my questions. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Julian Guerriere, here in Berlin at uh, EIC Innovator Summit. Uh, thanks a lot for joining me and good luck. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Welcome back to our podcast, Tech.eu podcast number 87. We are still on the news. And, uh, and Natalie, would you please tell us more about uh, the biggest uh, finding round uh, tracked last week in Europe? Yeah, of course. I'd be happy to. So uh, I want to talk a little bit about a story that Andre covered last week. And we learned that the French travel platform, Evaneos, picked up a 70 million euro funding round, a Series D round led by Partech. Evaneos was founded in 2009, and they've raised quite a lot of money from international investors with their Series C round that they raised in 2016, earning $21 million in financing. So this was the, the largest funding story that we learned about last week. Evaneos is a platform that helps travelers design personalized travel experiences by connecting them with local agents in each destination country. So you might think that travel agents were one of those careers to be disrupted by the internet, but you would be wrong. And I did a lot of research on this and I found that this field is one that's really diversifying as more people have the means to travel. The internet has really facilitated a lot of opportunities and growth in this field. And we've seen especially the explosion of new travel tech startups in Europe, especially. Evaneos in particular works with about 1,300 local agencies around the world, and they've coordinated at this point 300,000 trips to over 160 destinations. So what they offer compared to other travel providers is they give travelers a curated experience without having to do all the work for themselves. And it puts the entire travel package together for you and connects you with an agent that will be able to help 24-7 uh, while you're abroad. Oh, well, that's, that, that sounds pretty interesting. And that sounds like they are already doing pretty well for themselves. So what are they going to actually do with uh, the with 70 million uh, euros that they raised? Yeah, and that's a great question because it really does seem like there is a lot of opportunity in this area. The new funding is positioned to expand Evaneos' platform to North America, a landscape where there are many more competitors. You might recall that Airbnb launched Experiences in late 2016, and it continues to diversify their platform. So you might have heard of Airbnb for business targeting offsite travelers. While it is clear that Airbnb and Evaneos target very different customers with Airbnb looking for that more independent traveler and Evaneos looking for one that is a bit that wants a bit more tailored and bespoke experience. In the US market, this is also augmented by a further competitor called Virtuoso, a platform that targets this more high-end customer. Virtuoso also works with travel agencies and is one of the biggest names in travel technologies with an invitation-only network of over 17,000 travel advisors. And they don't let you purchase travel online because, as they say it, travel should be an experience, not a commodity. So Evaneos really comes into the middle of these two players. And it's very it'll be interesting to see how they find a market niche here. And altogether, it's a really big round. Great news for French tech and the largest round that we tracked last week.
Yeah, that's quite that, that's quite cool. That's quite interesting. Uh, I also like the wording of these uh, travel advisors. That's uh, that sounds like a new kind of uh, travel specialist uh, over there. Yeah, definitely. And as we've seen, there's been a ton of money invested into travel tech. And also lots and lots of new startups, especially in Europe, are taking on this um, area um, with some very exciting platforms and companies um, coming out of the different ecosystems, especially in Berlin, but also uh, especially in Spain and in France, too. Yeah, it's also going to be a fun part uh, for the company to uh, go out in North American uh, markets with its name that it's really hard to figure out how to pronounce. Yeah, we did have a, a quick back and forth about how to pronounce that. And I do think the name will be something that might be a bit of a struggle for the, the North American customer, definitely. So I think it said Evaneos, but we'll see how it goes down for them. And in any case, we'll be following their entry into this new market. Yep, let's keep an eye on that space. And uh, speaking of uh, French uh, tech, uh, let's get into the next uh, interview that I also took uh, at uh, the EIC Innovators uh, Summit in Berlin uh, last week. And this one is uh, with uh, Corinne Vigro from uh, TomTom. She is the co-founder of the company. She lives here in Amsterdam, but we talked in Berlin and she told me a lot of interesting things about what she has been up to both in TomTom, but also out of the company. And it's going to be all about navigation, self-driving cars and education. Hello, hello. Uh, this is Andre uh, Degeler of uh, Tech.eu, recording today at the EIC Innovator Summit uh, here in Berlin. I'm standing in a far corner of a former train station where the event is taking place, uh, joined today by uh, Corinne Vigro, co-founder at uh, TomTom, but also, as we just learned while she was on stage, a lot more. So, uh, Corinne, can you please tell a little bit more about what is it you're doing at TomTom, but also outside of the company? Well, TomTom, I've done quite a lot of things. Started the company 25 years ago through various stages. Uh, we were a startup for a long time, then scale up to about 5,000 people. I get disrupted in 2008 and pivoted the business in, uh, with never losing sight of, uh, of the, our passion about mobility and making the world safer and free of congestion. So that's what I've been doing all over the years. Personally, I've been looking a lot at the commercial side and I run the consumer PL. But I've also used my entrepreneurial, what I've learned over those years to put my energy into last six months in something I'm also very passionate about, and that's education. And I've just opened a school, a digital school in Amsterdam called Codam, C-O-D-A-M.nl, Codam.nl, which is to train digital skills, students, for them to learn digital skills. And back when you founded, uh, co-founded TomTom, was it actually called Startup at that time? No, I think that was uh, that was before any of this was fashionable. I don't know. We we uh, we just set up a company with four people, three friends, and me, and then that was it. No, I think all that uh, it wasn't very fashionable at the time. It's kind of the thing you did when none of the big companies wanted to recruit you. But in our case, we did that because we had an idea and uh, we thought we we could. Yeah, we already this idea of innovation was big, and uh, that's how we started the company. But never with the idea of becoming a big company one day, that's for sure. Right. Uh, you just also said on stage that it is very important for the European entrepreneurship ecosystem to catch up with uh, what's going on globally. So what do you think is the future of the ecosystem and where does it lie and what we need to do for that? Yeah, I think so. If I look at Europe, we have an awful lot of talent. We have good universities, good academia, good, well-trained people, and a very diverse culture. I really believe that diversity is the recipe for success in innovation. If you put a lot of people in a room that look and think differently, that's important. Unfortunately, we don't seem to be scaling in the same way as our American or, or, or Asian counterpart anymore. Uh, and it's really texting. I think we have really taken a backstage in the last few years. So I'm hoping that the next 20 years will be Europeans' turn to make tech giants by just uh, aiming big in the problem we're solving using all the talent that we have. Um, I think there's some areas as well we need to pick. If I look at fintech, I look at mobility, I look at uh, medicine, I think Europe is well-placed with some of the research that we have to make it big. So I think it's time for European entrepreneurs to, to gather and to, uh, and to really aim, aim high. 
Right. So is this uh, CODAM uh, school of yours, is it also part of this effort? Yes, I think we to succeed in, in the company, you need, it's all about people. It's about the, the right people at the top. It's about the right people sharing your vision and your passion and about digital skills. The whole world is going digital. And there is a big shortage of talent in Europe. And we're all facing, all technology companies are facing the same thing. I mean, at TomTom, we recruit nearly a thousand people a year, many engineers, you know, we, and we're all fighting with each other and getting the best talent. So CODAM is, is, is to train digital skills. Uh, I'm putting a big emphasis on women as well. I think we don't have enough women studying technology and, and, and coding. So that's um, putting a lot of effort in, in welcoming women in that school, but also equal opportunity. The school is open to anyone. It's free. So that's very important for me as well to, to maximize talent of all youngsters, uh, irrespective of their background and, and where they come from. That's actually what jumped at me uh, when I was looking at the website of uh, CODEM. Why is there a restriction that uh, only people up to 30 years older can start their education? We do that for the first cohort. So 18, because we don't want to have, uh, we want adults. It's, it's easier because the school is open all the time, day and night. And 30 is the limit just to get the first cohort, to get some homogeneity in the first cohort. But uh, I think in, in the subsequent year, we will open to older people, to older uh, students. So it, it's just, just to start. Right. So you said on stage that you spent, what, half a year uh, out uh, of uh, TomTom uh, just to work on CODEM? So are you going back now or are you still going to have uh, some time devoted to CODEM in the future? Well, no, and so the CODEM team is uh, is up and running. I have a fantastic team, very proud of the work they're doing. And uh, the first students are going to be walking through the door uh, in a couple of weeks' time. And so I'm going back into TomTom. So let's uh, let's speak about TomTom now. So the company does not produce any wearables anymore. So what uh, is the what's the focus now? Is it consumer products or is it B2B products or is it working with developers? Yeah, so to TomTom's aim has always been to to know the road better, make the road safer. So the three areas we're working on is uh, is basically mo- mobility, smart cities, connected cars, autonomous driving. So we're really capitalizing all the R&D investment we made all over the years to play a role in those different categories. So we're really participating into the digitally the mobile world of tomorrow. So we're going to be there working together with partners to make the, uh, the cities uh, and the, the world roads safer and less congested. Right. And I also I also noticed that recently uh, TomTom released some new uh, devices, uh, navigation devices. And I was basically thinking, so how this hardware is still relevant uh, for uh, for the people, for the consumers, for the drivers, when we have our in, uh, inbuilt uh, systems, when we have our apps, our phones, how is TomTom hardware, navigation hardware uh, relevant on the market? Oh, we do it because we have an awful lot of customers. We sell more than 3 million products per year so of those navigation devices for customers that are following, that are basically relying and trusting us to get them to their destination. Not all uh, cars have got an inbuilt system. It's still uh, quite elitist. It's, it's a higher proportion of cars come with an inbuilt system, but not all. Not everybody wants to use their phone because they don't want to be distracted, because the phone uh, navigation on the phone is not fit for purpose, uh, because uh, they need to have connectivity and sometimes they don't. So we have a, a big percentage of people that have been trusting our product for years and still relying heavily on it. And, and we're looking after those customers. That's why we keep bringing product. But it's a big part of our business still. And uh, what is it uh, you're doing in the direction of uh, autonomous cars and uh, connected cars? So we, our, our expertise is in navigation, traffic, and, uh, and map making. So we have uh, real-time map making. So you can imagine that uh, autonomous cars will be full of sensors, but at the same time, they need to know uh, if there is fog, if there is uh, a rain of snow, they can't read the, the lane guidance. So you need to be able to position the car within say two to five centimeters on the road our high definition mapping allows to do that and it's quite complex technology so that's something that we have we can scale that as well so um and that's what the that's what the cars will need to navigate autonomously tomorrow uh we also know all, everything about traffic we have we're a leader in traffic information worldwide uh so those are the piece of technology uh that uh, that we are 
that are necessary for autonomous driving, navigation, traffic and high definition mapping. And how do you define uh, your leadership in the traffic information based on what? Based on the on the number of uh, cars, uh, automotive uh, partners that are licensing our, our traffic information. So we are the biggest supplier of traffic information to automotive industry in Europe and number two in the US. Right. Then, last question. Uh, just in a recent podcast at Tech.eu, uh, we were discussing the growing popularity of uh, electric scooters, like the push scooters, uh, the small ones. And uh, in Paris, there are now uh, three companies that are providing them. So what do you think of this uh, problem of the last mile and this particular solution? Do you think this is the future or do you think there could be something better than that? I think that I like to see how people that are ingenious. I think you can, I believe in electric scooters. I think as the road gets safer as well, then, then you can bring other type of mobility. Uh, I think the mobility of tomorrow will be multimodal and, and that last mile is always a problem. Parking is a problem. So, uh, you know, I believe in that multimobility. I think electric bikes as well will be a, a big player in, uh, in the cities of tomorrow. We're here in Berlin today. I'm sure you, you haven't failed to notice how many people are going on the bike everywhere. Even so, in Amsterdam, and we're used to that but it's nice to go everywhere I go in the world I see that bikes are, are taking over the roads and the, the issue with bike is safety so I think that the, the advantage of autonomous driving and the mobility of tomorrow is that all those different uh, means of transport will work with, next to each other and make it safe for people who are using them Is there something you can offer to people uh, cycling or uh, driving electric uh, bikes? In terms of navigation? Yeah, well, I think the, the, we, we have released, we have a product for scooters where basically you have a deported screen and it uh, communicates automatically with your phone. So you don't have to get your phone out of your, uh, of your bags. So yeah, we're looking, uh, so that, that's, we, we provide navigation wherever people want, want to have it. So uh, we're the specialist in, in getting you from A to B and we're agnostic. You can use it on our, on one of our uh, dedicated device, but also on your phone. So that's, uh, we just want to make sure that people are safe. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Corinne uh, Vigro, uh, co-founder at TomTom, uh, Tom, uh, founder of uh, Codem and so many other things. Thanks a lot for uh, joining us today. Thank you very much. Nice talking to you. Uh, this was Andre Degler uh, of Tech.eu here in Berlin at the EIC Innovator Summit. Take care. Hello again and uh, welcome back to the podcast uh, by tech.eu. This is still our episode number 87 and we are still talking about the most interesting and exciting news stories uh, from the last week. So today it seems like I'm just uh, destined to talk uh, a lot about uh, the European policies and uh, the next story I wanted to mention is the global right to be forgotten that might or might not happen. So here is the story. I'm just going to start from the very beginning to explain what is uh, happening right now in the European uh, Court of Justice. So in 2014, this same European Court of Justice, which is the highest uh, court in the EU, uh, ruled in favor of the so-called right to be forgotten. That's probably most of us remember. Uh, what it means is that uh, search engines uh, must remove erroneous, irrelevant or outdated information about private citizens in the EU on request. So basically, if you know that searching your name gives some results that you don't want to see, uh, you can actually write to uh, Google and uh, ask them to uh, remove uh, these particular results uh, from the search. So Google uh, obliged, uh, of course, it had no choice. What happened then uh, is that uh, Google did, as it usually happens, the bare minimum uh, to satisfy uh, the requirements of uh, the European court. And it now removes the results from uh, the EU sites and also from non-EU sites like Google.com, but only if the searcher is in the same European Union country as the person who requested uh, the removal. So uh, the point is that if, for example, I requested uh, something removed uh, from uh, Google search results while being here in the, in the Netherlands, uh, then uh, Natalie, uh, being in the UK, would be able to go to Google.com uh, search for my name and still see the results uh, uh, that I wanted removed. Uh, 
The funny thing also is how many people turned out to be willing to uh, remove uh, stuff about them from the Google searches. So since 2014, according to uh, the Wall Street Journal, Google has received 722,000 requests to remove more than 2.7 million links from searches for individuals' names. This is like a lot. Uh, the company actually ended up removing about 44% of those. And uh, as far as I understand, the reason why it's not 100% is that in many cases it would be politicians and uh, other kind of public personas asking for these kind of removals and uh, the company can and has to balance uh, between the public uh, uh, interest and the private citizen's interest. So apparently uh, it happens in about half of the cases that the public interest dominates here. So I'm pretty surprised that that's less than 50% of compliance that, that Google has applied with this directive. And I would have expected that there would be way more requests, considering that there's over 500 million people living in the EU. So what's happened now? So uh, what is uh, happening now is uh, that uh, French uh, privacy watchdog uh, called CNIL ordered Google to make uh, all these uh, removals, the delistings, uh, global. And the order actually was given back in May 2016. Then Google, of course, well, pretty predictably did not uh, comply with that. And uh, then uh, CNIL uh, issued a fine of 100,000 uh, euros uh, for non-compliance. Then Google appealed and last year uh, the French court decided to refer uh, these uh, questions to the European Court of Justice again. So what happened uh, last week is the hearing. The first hearing uh, on the case, it was really interesting, actually. And uh, one of the more interesting parts about it is that during the hearing, the European Union's executive arm actually supported Google on its position. So the EU generally uh, supports the idea that the right to be forgotten should not be global. It says it goes way beyond the scope that was intended. But at the same time, it says that Google should use geolocation technology to remove results from all of its websites if the searcher is anywhere in the EU. So in the example that I mentioned earlier, Natalie in the UK should not be able to find the results that I wanted to be removed on any of Google's websites. So that's a small discrepancy in the views of Google and the EU, but it's still it's still a notable thing that the EU backed Google on this, especially since the European Union has fined Google for more than like 6 billion euros over the past few years for different sorts of violations. Now, according to uh, the Wall Street Journal, uh, we are going to hear a non-binding opinion in the case uh, from one of the court's advocate generals uh, on December 11th. Uh, but then uh, the ruling itself is only going to come anywhere between three and six months after that. So probably it means that uh, we are going to learn something about uh, this case in the first half of uh, 2019. That's again uh, something to stay tuned for and uh, keep an eye for news about. Wow, so lots of interesting developments coming out of the European Union Commission right now. And you can always stay tuned to tech.eu for the latest developments as we'll be following them on our site. Now, these were three biggest stories from the past week, and we can move on to our next section, which is events. Uh, Natalie, could you please start uh, uh, with uh, uh, what's coming up? Yeah, so as we're into September, there's obviously lots and lots of events to choose from this time of year. So I just want to highlight a few events that are happening in the next week. But first, this week, you can catch the Tech EU team on site in a number of different places. As I mentioned previously, I will be attending many events for the FinTech Fortnite here in Edinburgh. Andre, are you going to be anywhere this week? And uh, not this week, actually. This is my rest week, it seems. Uh, I'm going to spend uh, all of the time uh, here in Amsterdam uh, working on things that I missed uh, while going to different events uh, the weeks before. But uh, next week, I will be at uh, an event called Angel Island that I mentioned last time. Uh, that's going to happen uh, here in Amsterdam. And then afterwards, I will travel to uh, Ukraine, uh, which is the country I'm from, for 
a conference called the Lviv IT Arena. And if you are there, uh, please uh, come and say hi. Let's meet. Let's talk. Great. Well, that sounds awesome. And if you want to fill in your calendar for next week, we have a few events that you might want to choose from. So first is France Digital Day, which is going to be held on September 25th in Paris. And this one-day event highlights all of the best of the French startup and innovation scene. And it's one of the most important days of the year for French tech. This year, they're bringing together over 20 unicorn founders, 2,000 startup founders, and 50 managing partners from different European VC funds, and lots and lots of journalists um, are all coming together in Paris for, for this um, one-day event. So it's a great opportunity to get a crash course in everything French tech. So if you ever wanted to learn more, I would suggest you go check that one out. Um, it's, they've been doing it for a number of years now, run by a really great team. So they're, all the, the best of French tech is on display. So go have a look. And it's, it's very uh, affordable and easy to, um, to attend. The next event is more, less one event and more like 50 different events taking part in Oslo for Oslo Innovation Week, which takes place the 24th to the 28th of September. Um, it's a pretty exciting week with tons and tons of events, including talks, pitches, workshops, networking, and even a talk by former U.S. President Barack Obama on the 26th. But my highlight probably of the week would be the 100 pitches showcasing the best early stage startups that are, quote, building shit that matters. So during this week, also, we'd want to highlight the FinPact, an event that is a collaboration between the British Embassy Oslo and the Oslo FinTech Hub. And that event is entirely dedicated to how fintech can be used for global good. It really, really sounds like a very exciting thing. And you can find more information about that on our website, but also in the show notes. But if you don't have time to make it to Oslo this year, consider putting Oslo Innovation Week on your calendar for next year. Uh, as many of the events are very affordable, there's a great diversity of things going on. Very nice time of year to head up to Oslo. So just think about checking that out. And finally, the, the last event we want to highlight this week is CyberTech Europe happening on September 26th and 27th in Rome. This is another really significant event that's showcasing tons of solutions for global cyber threats from a real wide range of sectors. So it really offers something for everyone, whether you're interested in finance, transport, utilities, defense, manufacturing, and lots and lots more. The event really brings together stakeholders from lots of different um, sides of the European innovation landscape, whether they be multinational startups to private and corporate investors, um, and in total over 4,500 people. So if it's something that interests you, you can check it out on our website and you can find information about these and lots of other events by heading to tech.eu and clicking on the events um, right in our heading bar. So pretty easy to find. And if you have an event that you think we should know about, let us know. And the link um, to fill in the request will be in our show notes as well. The event season is uh, definitely on. So many things happening around. It's really, it's really hard to navigate. So yeah, let's uh, let's uh, keep an eye on uh, the new interesting things uh, coming up. And now it's time to move to the next uh, part, and that's the recommendations uh, from uh, from the both of us uh, about what to read, what to listen to, uh, what to check out in general. Uh, mine is going to be pretty quick, and uh, it's going to coincide with the last event uh, that you and Natalie has just uh, uh, talked about. So I'm not very knowledgeable about uh, cybersecurity and uh, cyber threats myself, but I do like reading about it i do like learning uh, some uh, more things uh, about uh, this topic so i do have two quick recommendations if you are also curious uh, 
First one is just like one story uh, on The Verge. It was called uh, How an International Hacker Network Turned Stolen Press Releases into $100 Million. And this is a really, uh, really fascinating uh, story about a sort of an unconventional way uh, for hackers to make money by accessing embargoed press releases on uh, news wires and then making inside trades based on the information that they gained. It's a really informative and very uh, well uh, written piece. Uh, do check it out. Uh, I will put the link in the show notes. It's called, again, How an International Hacker Network Turned Stolen Press Releases into $100 Million. The second one is a podcast. Uh, the podcast is called The Darknet Diaries. It's, uh, I guess it's pretty well known among the people who actually listen to podcasts. But again, if you are interested in cybersecurity, this might be a good thing for you to listen to. Uh, the podcast is all about what happens on the so-called uh, dark side of the internet. Uh, it has a lot of anecdotes on uh, how hackers work. And uh, it uh, does feature a bunch of interviews with actual people who... Uh, uh, used to break into security system of some very very serious companies. Uh, yesterday, while I was um, uh, traveling by car, I listened to the latest uh, episode. I believe it's number twenty-two now, and I definitely can recommend you uh, check uh, this one out. And some parts of it are just outright hilarious. Uh, some are surprising, and uh, overall, it's a really really interesting listening. Natalie, what do you have to recommend this week? Great. Well, I also have two recommendations for this week, and they, they are somewhat related, um, as yours were. So the first um, I would like to recommend is the book called Hedge by Nicholas Cullen of The Family. The family has been in the news last week as they just announced that they've raised 15 million euros. And if you don't know, The Family is is a, a really unique um, firm. They're a startup accelerator, educator, and ecosystem builder that's had a really big impact in Paris, London, and also in Berlin. So Nicholas's book, Hedge, it came out this summer, and I just finished it over the weekend. And what it does is it advances the concept of a new social safety net for the entrepreneurial age. So he argues that the the current safety net based on um, Fordism coming out of the Second World War um, is no longer capable to deal with the demands and the changes that have been brought on by today's um, technology. So it rightly identifies some of the mechanisms that have led to a backlash against the tech industry, and it suggests a few ways for those to take greater accountability. And it goes on to outline outline what it will take to completely redesign the social net for today's realities. I will hedge a bit myself to say that I don't totally agree with everything that he advances here. And indeed, there are actually some things I, I kind of ardently disagree with. But if you agree with everything that you're reading, you're you're probably not reading the right things. So I encourage you to, to challenge yourself. And that's part of the reason why I'm recommending this book this week, because he starts a really important conversation. And something that I appreciate about Hedge and about Mr. Collins' work, and especially that of the family, is that instead of just kind of spouting off opinions about how things can be difficult in European tech, or that institutions are not enabling the conditions for startups in Europe to thrive, um, they're really all about action. And the family is doing some great things in helping to educate and enable the European tech companies of tomorrow. And they've been such a positive force for change and really in instrumental in kind of diversifying the conversation we have about what's needed to make companies thrive here in Europe. So I invite you to read that and to see what you think. And you can also get a bite-sized portion of Nicholas's work every week with his really thought-provoking newsletter. And we'll link to that in the show notes too. And it comes out every Wednesday and it's, it's a great read. Related to this is my second recommendation of the week. And it similarly continues this theme about advancing the conversation about the future of tech. And it's called the Copenhagen Catalog. So you might've seen this across social media last week, but... The Copenhagen Catalog outlines 150 different principles for a new direction in tech, and they were developed by a big group of people during Tech Festival in Copenhagen a few weeks back. 
So the Copenhagen Catalog continues the work done by the Copenhagen Letter, which was written last year and really discussed um, ways to increase accountability in tech and also to kind of identify and amplify the human role in the tech community. And what I really like about it is that it's such an incredibly hopeful and and really kind of a beautiful thing with so many people coming together to talk about the community and the industry that they want. And what it emphasizes is that when we consider the future of the tech industry, um, we want to have a role in crafting how we want it and that we don't have to accept how things are. Entrepreneurs have this great opportunity to shape the future and communities really have power here. And for example, one of the principles of the Copenhagen Catalog asks about if you want a world that is B2B or B2C, but rather why don't we have one that's human to human? So overall, it's it's pretty thought-provoking and um, really insightful. And these are just a few of the principles that the Copenhagen Catalog advances. And very cool to read, really fun experiment, bringing all these people together to talk about change. And if you agree with them, um, you can add your name to it. So we'll link to that as well. So check it out. Well, this is really great. And I really do feel uh, ashamed of not reading enough books i will definitely check out uh, uh, check out hedge uh, and i will try to read it before our next uh, uh, week's podcast so you can uh, next time we record you can actually you, you can test me on that okay great and uh, yeah i will definitely also read the copenhagen catalog i did read the i did read the letter and i remember it so it's really interesting to see what uh, uh, what sort of continuation they have uh, they have come up with right this looks like uh, that has been uh, uh, the last uh, part uh, of uh, things we wanted to share uh, this week this is it for our podcast i do hope uh, you enjoyed it please do not miss new episodes subscribe on your favorite podcast app just look for tech.eu podcast and we will definitely be there uh, tell everyone you know about the podcast follow our updates on twitter at tech underscore eu and on facebook at just tech.eu please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions, and opinions at andreattech.eu, and we will definitely read uh, some of them uh, next week. Natalie, thanks a lot uh, for uh, joining today. Thanks a lot for uh, all the stories that you have shared. You're welcome. And thank you to all the readers and listeners for downloading the podcast and let us know what you think. We'd really appreciate your comments and suggestions. Now, enjoy the rest of your week and talk to you next Wednesday. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.